Proton has a brand new high security program. Discord IO had a data breach, tons of research and more. Welcome to Surveillance Support 147, everybody. It's awesome to have you all here where we are dedicated to keeping you private and secure with the latest news in the past week so you can enable yourself to live a safe life. I am Henry from TechLore. Nate will not be joining us today. He's busy battling oligopolies as we speak. This is all completely free podcast to all of you, and we really appreciate any of that support that you can give back to us. Our goal is to bring privacy and security news to people, and as you all know, it's pretty darn uh, frequent, and it's a lot of work for us to compile all of this and give it to all of you in a nice streamlined format. So if you want to contribute to this podcast and you get value from this podcast, definitely go check out our Patreon down below at Patreon slash surveillance pod and if you don't like patreon we also support libra pay and we also support monero for direct contributions through those two platforms as well this all helps us keep this podcast going and growing and allow us to reach more people and keep more people safe so thank you all for your support and thank you to our current supporters you're all awesome and keep us going forever, hopefully. Let's dive right into the highlight story. So this one definitely piqued my interest. So Proton, the you know email calendar and everything else they do, a company released something called Sentinel, which is a high security program. I'm gonna quote the article. They're releasing this program available to anyone who wants the highest level of account security protection and support. If you're subscribed to a Proton Visionary, Lifetime, Family, Unlimited, or Business Plan, you can go to account.proton.me and enable Proton Sentinel in Settings, Go to Settings, Account, Security, and Privacy. Even though Proton has not had any data loss, leaks, or breaches, attackers can potentially get your password by phishing you or trying leaked passwords from other services in the hope that you may have reused passwords. This was a major threat, especially for accounts without two-factor authentication, and they had to carefully help many users recover their compromised accounts. More quotes, people who enable Proton Sentinel will enjoy benefits such as advanced protection that will be more likely to detect and challenge suspicious events such as login attempts. Suspicious events will be escalated 24-7 to security analysts who will review the assessments made by their automated systems, and also support requests related to account security will automatically escalate to trained security specialists. Accounts enrolled in the Proton Sentinel program are not just monitored 24-7 by software, but also by teams of security analysts who are experts at detecting infiltration and account takeover attempts. This provides protection and support that greatly exceeds what is possible via automated systems alone. Finally, they believe users are the ultimate guardians of their security, so Proton Sentinel users will see more account security alerts and information for self-monitoring. Important events in security logs, such as logins and account changes, will have a new column called Protection, showing any defensive actions their systems take. There will also be other useful information, such as the operating system and device that triggered the event. So I really want to outline who this is for. If you're someone who's using Proton strictly for privacy purposes, you don't want Proton to know anything about you from a privacy perspective, um, this isn't really for you. This is for someone who's using Proton and is in a high threat model situation where they're really looking to maximize the security offered by the suite. And that's exactly what they're offering. And this is very similar to something like Google's Advanced Protection Program, GAPP. And this is pretty much where Google will have more monitoring tools in place. They're going to have a few more restrictions on your account. They're going to amplify their precautions that they have on your account. And this actually seems in some ways kind of nicer than that because Proton is even saying they're going to have people who are 24-7 keeping tabs on all of these alerts that might be impacting you and your safety. So 
again, if you're someone who doesn't know why you would use this or you, you don't really understand the purpose, then it's probably not for you. But for the people who this is for, journalists, people in high security situations, and anyone else who really needs to maximize their security everywhere they can go, this is something you should be looking into. And actually, there's even some granularity to this because when you opt in, supposedly you can actually um, directly tell Proton, and I don't mean like fill out a form, I mean you actually email Proton basic information about what yourself about yourself and any risks that you specifically have and they can actually use some of that personal information to help protect you as well but again this is all opt-in so this is really just a service they're offering to people who want to maximize this and now we're going to go into the data breaches so there's only one this week surprisingly and discord io was the one who was responsible just to clear this up discord io is not an official discord site but it's a third-party service allowing server owners to create custom invites to their channels most of the community was built around the service's Discord server with over 14,000 members. This includes um, many things, including email, usernames, billing addresses, salted and hashed passwords, and Discord IDs. Keep in mind, it's impacted a lot more people than their 14,000 members. It was almost 800,000 users. So a lot of people use this service. So if you're on Discord, make sure that you are changing your passwords and anything like that if you use Discord IO. All right, now we're gonna go into companies and also only one story this week. It's a pretty light week for those of you um, curious. Uh, most of it went into research thanks to mostly DEF CON. Uh, but in the company section, so Google released its first quantum resilient FIDO2 key implementation. So they've announced this open source, so it's open source quantum resilient FIDO2 security key implementation, which uses a unique ECC dilithium hybrid signature schema co-created with ETH Zurich. So that's all a fancy way of saying that they're having this new open source FIDO. So FIDO is pretty much what they use for pass keys. It's a open standard and it's what we're using now. And a lot of, and a lot of people are migrating towards this. This is kind of the next big thing for passwords and it's probably going to replace lots of your passwords in the next decade. Um, but FIDO is really awesome. And so they're now releasing a quantum resilient version of FIDO called FIDO2. It's all open source. And the article has some more light details about how this particular algorithm works. So if you're more technical and you want to dive into the algorithms that they chose and decided to use, that's definitely where I'd suggest you all go. We just try to keep things pretty brief on this podcast. And now into the research. So uh, scientists have recreated Pink Floyd song by reading brain signals of listeners. So they trained a computer to analyze the brain activity of someone listening to music. And based on only the neurons, they recreated the song. The research, and for those wondering the song, it's Another Brick in the Wall Part 1. Uh, Another Brick in the Wall Part 2 is actually immune to this attack. I'm just playing there. But <laughs> they probably could have done it with the Part 2 as well. So the way this worked is they recorded the brains of 29 epilepsy patients. And as part of their treatment, the patients had a net of nail-like electrodes implanted in their brains, which created kind of a rare opportunity for the neuroscientists to do things to them and use them as guinea pigs. So they recorded their brain activity while they listen to music. Other groups are doing similar experience using non-invasive brain scanners such as functional magnetic resonance imaging or fMRI which gives a less detailed measure of activity but scans across the entire brain. So um, the reason why this is included is just for people to keep an eye on this we're starting to see more and more things involving uh, the ability to read minds. <laughs> um, obviously in closed settings where we have things physically hooked up to us so it's not like you can just hold your phone up to someone and read their mind but uh, as people on the forefront of the privacy movement 
content, we want to be sure that we're keeping an eye on things like this because uh, technologies often have a pro and a con, and a lot of times things like this, the privacy issues are going to be the cons. So that's why we're kind of keeping this on our radars and we're sharing it along with you as well. There is a Pentagon-funded study that uses AI to detect violations of social norms within texts. So the difficulty with this premise is that norms are different. <laughs> who would have thought? Depending on who you are and where you're from. Researchers claim, however, that while various cultures, values, and customs may differ, human responses to breaking with them may be fairly consistent. So they ultimately concluded that a constructive strategy for identifying the violation of social norms is to focus on a limited set of social emotions signaling the violation, namely guilt and shame. In other words, the scientists wanted to use AI to understand when a mobile user might be feeling bad about something they've done. Um, this is also just kind of interesting and stuff to keep on your radar. Something that this reminds me of is a lot of social media, pretty much anything that's algorithmically generated. Uh, so any kind of algorithmic content, anything that's sorted by an algorithm, which is pretty much every social media nowadays. And if you're watching this on YouTube, that includes YouTube as well. A lot of these algorithms uh, just kind of function on giving people what keeps them engaged as long as possible. And a lot of times that's actually something that's going to trigger you emotionally. And so um, it is interesting and I want everybody to think about how emotions influence the way you use your devices. And frankly, if someone can nudge your emotions in a certain direction, they can keep you engaged on a platform much longer. So that's instantly where I see this technology being probably useful for nefarious purposes. So um, again, always things to keep on your radar. Here's kind of a fun one. So an Apple malware flagging tool is trivially easy to bypass. So there's a background task management tool uh, on macOS that focuses on watching for persistent software. This was introduced in macOS Ventura, which launched in October 2022, so it's a pretty recent feature, and it sends notifications both directly to users and to any third-party security tools running on a system if one of these persistence events occurs. This way, if you know you just downloaded and installed a new application, you can disregard the message, but if you didn't, you can investigate the possibility that you've been compromised. One of the bypasses uh, presented on Saturday requires root access to a target's device, meaning that attackers need to have have full control before they can stop users from receiving persistence alerts. So that's a very big friction point. So this probably isn't a huge deal to a lot of you, but, but here's where it gets interesting. They also found two paths that don't require root access to disable the persistence notifications in Background Task Manager, uh, where it's supposed to send to the user and to security monitoring products. One of these exploits takes advantage of a bug in how the alerting system communicates with the core of a computer's operating system known as the kernel. The other capitalizes on a capability that allows users, even those without deep system privileges, to put processes to sleep. They found that this capability can be manipulated to disrupt persistence notifications before they can get to the user. The article was very scant on technical details, but it's worth being aware of this as a Mac user, and hopefully Apple will take the proper steps to get this resolved, and they won't be jerks about it. On the topic of Apple, there is now a $70 device that can spoof an Apple device and trick you into sharing your password. So DEF CON uh, just recently happened, and it's pretty well known that if you go to DEF CON, you have to be pretty on your toes because there are a lot of hacking attempts there because it's a group of hackers all in one place. And this year's event, uh, conference veterans were a bit 
confused and concerned when their iPhones started showing pop-up messages, prompting them to connect their Apple ID or share a password with a nearby Apple TV. But as it turned out, these alerts were part of a research project that had two goals. One was to remind people that to switch off Bluetooth on an iPhone, you have to dig into the settings app and not just tap it off on the quick access control center. The other reason that they did this was to have a laugh, <laughs> the security researchers said as they walked around the conference, triggering these pop-ups of the custom-made device. Um, they told TechCrunch that all they needed for this experiment was a contraption consisting of a Raspberry Pi, two antennas, a Linux-compatible Bluetooth adapter, and a portable battery. Unlike real Apple devices, his contraption wasn't programmed to collect any data from nearby iPhones, even if the person tapped and accepted the prompts. But in theory, they could have collected some data. So I do think they actually did this to have a laugh. It doesn't look like they used this for any nefarious purposes, but it is interesting to know that this can be spoofed. And as I like to remind people, try to have Bluetooth off as much as you can. It is just generally a good thing to do. And the final research article, YouTube ads may have led to online tracking of children, some new research says. So uh, in 2019, YouTube and Google agreed to pay a record $170 million fine to settle accusations from the FTC and the state of New York that the company had illegally collected personal information from children watching kids' channels. YouTube then said it would limit the collection of viewers' data and stop serving personalized ads on children's videos. Analytics identified more than 300 brands' ads for adult products like cars on nearly 100 YouTube videos designed as made for kids that were shown to a user who was not signed in, and that linked to advertisers' websites. An analysis by The Times this month found that when a viewer who was not signed into YouTube clicked the ads on some of the children's channels in the site, they were taken to brand sites that placed trackers. And those trackers were from companies like Amazon, Meta, Facebook, Google, Microsoft, and others. The Times shared some of Adalytics' research with Google ahead of its publication, and a Google spokesman called the report's findings deeply flawed and misleading. So we'll see how this unfolds. There'll probably be updates to this, so make sure to stay subscribed. All right, and now we're gonna move into the politics. So police are getting DNA data from people who think that they actually opted out. So this article gives a nice primer into uh, how police use DNA testing to find suspects um, and how this has exploded in the recent years, as well as kind of the controversy around it and whether or not this respects individuals' privacy rights. It's kind of unfortunate because there are several high profile genetic genealogists who exploited a loophole in a commercial database called GED Match, which allowed them to search the DNA of individuals who explicitly opted out of sharing their genetic information with police. The loophole allows them to work with police to manipulate search fields within a DNA comparison tool to trick the system into showing opted out profiles. Two other forensic genetic gene genealogists discussed this loophole and how to trigger it. One of them described hiding the fact that her organization had made an identification using an opted out profile. Uh, this is just a good example of how they are skirting privacy rules put in place by DNA database companies to protect their customers. These practices still remain pretty unknown, in part because police and prosecutors have fought to keep details of this from being turned over to criminal defendants, because otherwise uh, they probably wouldn't be arrested. Um, so this is problematic in a lot of different capacities. I mean, this is why I heavily discourage people from sharing their DNA, at least until this entire nonsense becomes 
a little bit more clear cut. But as of right now, you have to trust your DNA company to actually not share your data, even if you opt out. And apparently, even if you do that, you have to trust that there's not going to be random police who are misusing their power and still getting access to this information anyway. I am most upset about this because these are people who explicitly opted out of this kind of nonsense and they still were not respected. So I really hope that there are follow-ups to this and people have a course of action to uh, see if they've been impacted by this loophole and if they can take any action uh, to get some kind of compensation in return. Over in Illinois, which is a state here in the US, they just made it possible to sue people for doxing attacks. So this is referred to as an anti-doxing law, which makes it possible for victims to sue attackers who intentionally publish their personally identifiable information with intent to harm or harass them. This takes effect on January 1st, 2024, and it's passed after a unanimous vote. It allows victims to recover damages and to request a temporary restraining order, emergency order of protection, or preliminary or permanent injunction to restrain and prevent the disclosure or continued disclosure of a person's personally identifiable information or sensitive personal information. Uh, Nate included kind of a fun note here, which is why don't we ban online data brokers who make this easy and possible in the first place, which I do find interesting. I guess we're going to see how this plays out because uh, a couple issues that I see in this is one, how most doxing attempts uh, are done by random people online. It's really rare for you to know exactly who did uh, a dox. And so they're going to have to probably be able to prove who did a dox attempt and then they can actually take action against them. So that's the first issue. The second issue, yeah, like there are lots of other ways to get your information. So what qualifies as a dox? Um, if someone puts up their own blog online with their own information and then they remove it down the road, but there's an archived version of that site, is the Internet Archive now doxing them because they don't want that information up anymore? So what are these edge cases going to do? What's going to happen in those situations? What about data brokers who just collect this by default and publish it by default without your control? Is that not doxing? How is that different from another stranger who gets your information and posts it? So lots of questions I have about this, but it's kind of nice to see people even talk about this and start to treat it seriously. And the final political story is back to WorldCoin. We said we'd talk about this more and here we are. Kenya is trying to pretty much stomp down on WorldCoin, which is a very privacy invasive cryptocurrency project. And Kenya is like, we're not doing this. Um, so they have ignored their initial order to stop iris scans in Kenya, which Kenya wanted them to stop doing. They instructed the crypto startup to stop these iris scans and the collection of facial recognition and other personal data in Kenya. Uh, and the company building WorldCoin, Tools for Humanity, I'm sure that they are only going to benefit humanity, uh, did not stop taking biometric data until early this month when Kenya's Ministry of Interior and Administration uh, suspended it following its official launch. That's really all there is to it. Uh, they're such a wonderful company that they have to be forced by a binding law to do the right thing or even consider it because they care that much about humanity. So, it, you know, some people are criticizing Kenya saying, well, if they're having such a problem with this, why did they allow it to happen in the first place? And you know what? There could be a million different reasons. Maybe they genuinely didn't think this would be a big deal a few years ago, and now they're like, this is a big deal. But the thing is, and what I really appreciate about this is Kenya is reversing their previous stance on this because they think that this is now the right thing to do. And I feel like that's looked down on for some reason. People make mistakes. People have issues that they do. People change their mind about things and people go, well, you're not being consistent. But in this case, I'm very glad that Kenya switched course and is now what I believe doing the right thing. And so 
This is awesome to see, and I hope more people start holding WorldCoin accountable. And this is a short week, so there's only one quick FOSS story, and well, technically the Proton Sentinel thing was in FOSS, but we moved it to the highlight story. Um, but the other FOSS story is Debian, the Linux distribution turned 30. So for all of you Debian fanboys, who I know there are many of you out there, uh, they turned 30 this last week. So uh, yay to Debian, yay to any of you using Debian. And um, yeah, I don't know if any of you are gonna celebrate hard enough to like go get something like a snack or something and get yourself a little birthday present. But um, yeah, for all you Debian nerds, there you go. Have some fun and hopefully they are around another 30 years. And there were no misfits this week, so it was a really short week. But uh, at least that's a shorter podcast and you all have more time to spend with your friends and family. Um, and also, you know what? This is one of the few podcasts that I think is probably overall good when we don't have that many stories because it means the world isn't devolving uh, in the privacy and security space too much this week. But either way, we're, there was some nice positive news this week. Proton released a new high security program. Uh, we covered that Discord IO data breach. Uh, there was a lot of research, which is kind of fun to recap this week. And there was a lot more more news. Again, this takes a lot of time on our ends and we really just want to give you all the news and keep you all safe. So if you appreciate that and you find value from this podcast, uh, by far the best way that you can keep us going and keep us expanding and uh, keep us really engaged in this for the long run is by supporting this podcast on Patreon. So patreon.com slash surveillance pod. And if you don't like Patreon or you don't want to, I don't know, whatever your issue with Patreon is, we're also on LibraPay. And we're also uh, except Monero. That's all in the description or the show notes. And as always, the sources for the stories are down there as well. And the last thing I'll say is I just want to thank everyone for tuning in and keeping yourself safe out there and staying updated with the privacy and security news. You're all probably uh, the people keeping your friends and family in the loop on a lot of this stuff as well. So I just want to thank you all for valuing that and valuing what we have to say and the news that we're sharing with all of you. And we will see you next week for Surveillance Report 148. Make sure you're subscribed, share the podcast around. Definitely feel free to timestamp a story and share it with someone you know. And we will see you next week.